Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you here, and welcome folks uh, watching from home or wherever you are online. Uh, my name is Rick Edwards. I serve as the Director of Discipleship here at Emmaus Road Church. Uh, that means I kind of oversee our life groups and our prayer ministry and some of our other special events. Uh, Pastor Andy is taking a well-deserved rest after moving to new quarters this week, and so I'm filling in to serve as our preacher this morning. So it is good to be back in person, I must say. Um, it's been, oh, well, Good Friday service was the first time that Debbie and I have been back in this building for worship service for over a year, well over a year. And uh, it is refreshing and a little bit, I guess, uh, freeing to feel like you can move about and be back in amongst our church family. We have both got, had our second vaccinations, so we kind of feel footloose and fancy free and a little bit liberated, I guess you might say. Um, some satisfaction maybe that we've done our part to help bring about our herd immunity that we're all looking for. But um, even though I might still kind of feel, um, I don't want to say invincible, but a lot better about moving about in public, um, I still have to remind myself that there still are some things that aren't hunky-dory. Um, there are still people that are contracting COVID, the coronavirus, and even people dying. I just checked the uh, little dashboard for Larimer County, and, and they still have us sitting in the, right in the middle of the high-risk zone for, uh, re, for catching COVID. So um, that's a little bit concerning as well. And people that haven't gotten their vaccines that are still anxious about getting them. You know, they're on waiting lists or looking for places to go. And lots of restrictions still in our society, limitations on business and recreation, um, all sorts of activities. Um, it was, let's see, a year ago, March, my mother passed away in Arizona. And uh, because of COVID restrictions and all sorts of travel restrictions, we haven't had a funeral service for her yet. So we're looking to try to do that this summer, but it's still, things aren't back to normal. Um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, one family I know was supposed to have a, a family reunion here in Colorado. It's kind of a central meeting point. Um, but there were some family members from back east that didn't feel comfortable getting the COVID vaccine, and some family members from the west coast that didn't feel comfortable, be, comfortable being around people that were unvaccinated. So, and then there's another a bunch of family members that are kind of stuck in the middle. So we're trying to figure out, they're trying to figure out how to, what to do about um, getting together this summer or not. Um, and underneath all of that, I think we still have some of the political and racial tensions going on. Everybody's watching the, the trial in Minnesota for the police officer um, up in Minnesota. So life still is not back to normal. It's uncertain, still unsettled, you might say. Um, and even during Easter and springtime, when everything is supposed to be new and fresh, we still have these feelings of fear or confusion. 
uh, anxiety or grief that still kind of hover over us, aren't they? I don't know if any of you have had experiencing the same kind of thing. But because of that atmosphere, the tension, I think our scripture passage um, probably is fairly appropriate for those, that kind of a condition. And so I'd like us to read along the same story that Grace read for our children's message. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we'll start with uh, reading with verse 19, John 20, 19. I'll re read us from the uh, New Revised Standard Version. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. I'd like to make four quick observations about this opening passage from our scripture for today. Uh, first is to... It, we have to think about John, the gospel writer, wrote this account, this storyline here about this um, episode. And he was trying to make the point, as Andy pointed out last week in our Easter message, that uh, Easter, in John's view, was the first day of what God is bringing about as new creation. So a couple things to th remember from Pastor Andy's message last week. Resurrection on the first day of the week brings to mind the Genesis accounts of the seven days of creation, especially the first one, which indicates that Jesus' resurrection is the first event of God's new creation. God has intervened in the brokenness of our world and um, brought about a miracle of new creation. Second point, in that, in that Easter story when Mary Magdalene is visiting the tomb and uh, is wandering and weeping after... Um, not seeing Jesus' body where it was supposed to be, she met Jesus, but she thought he was the gardener. Of course, this is a sly reference back to the Garden of Eden, right? Jesus is the new Adam, the caretaker of the new creation, just as Adam was the steward of the Garden of Eden. So in Jesus, we see what it means to be fully human, as God intended us to be from the very beginning. So that's kind of a recap from Pastor Andy's message. That provides the context for our story today. So observation number two. All of this happened. Jesus' trial, his passion, his death, and his resurrection all happened right around the feast of the Passover, a high holy day for Jewish people. But here the disciples are not enjoying or participating in that festival. They're locked behind closed doors. Locked down. There's that phrase that we've been hearing too much about, right? Locked down for fear. And why? Well, let's count some of the reasons. One, their leader, Jesus, the man that they considered not only a mentor but a friend, was dead. Two, their hopes and their dreams for the future had pretty much been dashed. Their movement was pretty much done and over with, and they had no other alternate plans for the future. Uh, third, the doubts and questions were swirling in their minds uh, like were the authorities that killed Jesus going to come after them? Would they be executed too? 
Should they flee the city of Jerusalem where they were? Where was God in all this? Had God abandoned them? And then fourthly, there were some unsettling reports floating about about Jesus' body. Remember, Peter and John had run to the empty tomb, come back and reported it to the disciples and said that Jesus' body is not there. And Mary Magdalene had told all the disciples that she had actually seen and spoken with Jesus. So all these things, these questions, these confusions, this chaos, practical and theological, were all infused with these feelings of fear, guilt, anxiety, grief. Um, Observation number three, Jesus comes in and he says, peace be with you, which means basically in that Jewish context of the day, may God give you every good thing or may you enjoy well-being in every part of your life. It's a very holistic kind of a greeting. And at that time, it was a common greeting, just like we would say, hi, how are you, or how's it going, kind of a thing. But having said it twice in this little passage, John is trying to emphasize the fact that there's something special about this extension of a greeting, uh, courtesy greeting. Uh, It's really about the really good things that Jesus and the new creation are bringing about. Our fourth observation on this passage, Jesus breathes onto them the Holy Spirit, just as God did for Adam in the beginning. Remember Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And Jesus also says, As the Father has sent me, I send you. So just as God gave Adam responsibility to name all the animals and take care of the garden in the Garden of Eden. So Jesus is also giving his followers a new task, a mission, namely to continue Jesus's work of peacemaking, extending forgiveness, and reconciliation. So all of this are reminders, again, in John's way of saying the new creation has started, kind of reflecting a little bit what happened in the Garden of Eden with the creation of Adam. Jesus now is a new Adam and is now sending his disciples on a new mission. So things are kind of looking up now at the end of this little section of our scripture. Jesus really is alive. The disciples see it and believe it. He has this new kind of body that evidently is Jesus, the Jesus that they knew, but with some different abilities, maybe to move in and out of locked rooms um, that um, nobody else could do. Um, Secondly, the disciples now have a renewed purpose, a mission that Jesus gave them to continue his work. And they must have this joy and this comfort from knowing that the Holy Spirit now will empower them and be with them as they go about accomplishing their mission. But there is a fly in the ointment, um, and that is the fact that one of their group is missing. So let's read the second part of our scripture here. This is uh, John again, John 20, verses 24 and 25. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the marks of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, where was Thomas when Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples first? Maybe, we don't know for sure, he could have been maybe a a kind of a loner or a stoic or maybe an introvert where he had to be alone with his feelings of grief after Jesus' crucifixion. He might need time to process all that, what was going on. 
Uh, on the other hand, uh, removing himself from his community of faith might not have been the wisest thing to do. We don't know for sure. Uh, or he could have been bravely living out his life in the world. Uh, he might have been circulating in amongst all the other pilgrims that had come for the feast of Passover. Um, and he was running the risk, of course, being identified as one of those disciples that were following Jesus, one of those troublemakers. Um, or maybe he was picking up the curbside order of fish and chips that Peter called in. We don't know. The, the Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what Thomas was up to. But what we do know from what he says is that he was not about to be taken in, taken in by any wishful thinking about Jesus or caught up in some group delirium about seeing Jesus alive again. He wanted to see for himself before he got himself involved again with this Jesus movement. Now, traditionally, Thomas has kind of been looked down upon because of his doubt, um, expressing his doubt out loud like that. Um, it might have reflected maybe a lack of faith in God's power or a lack of trust in his fellow disciples believing what they told him or some lack of theological imagination, not knowing that God could do something as miraculous as a resurrection, whatever it would be. But if we think about it and look back Thomas actually reacted no differently than the other disciples had, right? They apparently had not believed the testimony of Mary when she said that she had seen and spoken with Jesus, and they were still locked down in fear, and they had not gone out as Jesus told them to do. Remember, he said, as the Father has sent me, I send you. They had not. They were still hiding behind locked doors. So now, the scene now comes now to a kind of a dramatic conclusion that John is writing for us. And that brings us to our third little section of scriptures. We'll read it, the rest of this passage, uh, verses 26 through 29. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. So here we are. We're in the second week now of the new creation. The disciples are still in lockdown a week after Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit and then sent them out on a mission. And then Jesus appears again, despite the locked doors, but he doesn't scold them for their lack of um, obedience to him or for their cowardice or anything. Instead, Jesus invites Thomas to inspect his scars, a classic scene in John's gospel narrative. And this scene is so dramatic that it's often been the, the subject of lots of famous artworks. So I want us to do a little bit of art appreciation this morning and take a look at a couple of renditions of that interaction between Jesus and Thomas. Okay? Um, in, in the art world, this is often called the incredulity of St. Thomas, and that's kind of the title given to a lot of these paintings. So our first painting is by Rembrandt. Do we have Rembrandt? Yeah, there he is. Um, so we can see there's a whole crowd of disciples. I think there's like 12, 13 people gathered around Jesus. And Thomas is among them, of course, in the center with Jesus. Um, and if you take a look at the lines of the heads of the people, they kind of form an upside-down V, and at the apex is Jesus, right? You see Jesus right in the middle, at the, a little bit higher than all the others, and the others kind of a, 
form a V-shape, upside-down V-shape. Jesus is the center, and it looks like he's the source of the light in this painting. There's a halo or a nimbus of light behind his head, um, and he's invited Thomas to look at the scar. But Thomas it seems to be pulling back, either maybe out of a shock or maybe a reluctance or fear of touching someone who is so otherworldly at this point, the way as Jesus is depicted here. But he's, he's not, it looks like he's not about to do what Jesus asked him to do or invited him to do. Um, our next one is from Peter Paul Rubens uh, from around the same time in the 1600s. Now we see that the crowd has been reduced just to three disciples. Uh, Thomas is in the center. The young person in front is John. John is always the, considered to be the youngest of the disciples. And then in the back, maybe Peter or someone. We're not sure exactly who that third disciple might be. But he's looking at Jesus' face rather than down at the scars in his hands. And the line of sight, if you see, it kind of moves from lower right to upper left. And at the top there is Jesus, of course, as the focal, focal point again. Dark background, and the light seems to be coming from outside, maybe from the viewer's perspective, kind of shining onto Jesus and the disciples there. Um, so here we have a little bit more of a more human-looking Jesus. Um, he's pretty clean and antiseptic, but it is uh, a human Jesus. And there is a small, clean wound in his, the palm of his hand. And there's no sign of a wound in his side. And also, Jesus is looking pretty ripped right there in this painting. So, <laughs> interesting to see. Um, our next one is good old Caravaggio. And he always was good for real dramatic depictions of biblical scenes. Here we see four heads in the center form kind of a diamond shape, right? And Jesus is mixed in right in there among them, um, kind of on an equal level with the other disciples. Jesus is just as human as the other three disciples. And all are bent down, looking focusedly, focused intensely on inspecting the wound in Jesus' side. And you see how grubby Thomas is right in the front. He's got a torn seam on the shoulder of his tunic. And his, finger, his fingers have, are, you can see the dirt under his fingernails if you get up close on this painting. And he's got his finger poked right into Jesus clear up to the knuckle, which is really uh, probably pretty true. The actual Greek in John's gospel, when it says, touch my wound here, he says, put it inside. That's the actual Greek, literally. So Thomas is doing that. Actually, you see the hand on Thomas's arm, that's Jesus, has Thomas's arm in his hand, and he's kind of helping Thomas put his finger in his own side, as if he's wanting to say, Thomas, I want to make sure that you see and feel me in all my fleshly, gory reality. So, okay, and then our, our fourth painting is by a Catholic uh, artist named Ferreira. And this is Thomas all by himself. No disciples, not even Jesus there. And it's pure, unadulterated emotional response to seeing Jesus. And I, I, I love this. I get a kick out of this. The eyes are wide open with surprise. His mouth is hanging open, kind of like in awe, but his mouth is also kind of sideways in a smile as if there's a joy there. He's, he's trying to smile, but yet he's so awestruck he can't decide whether he wants to drop his mouth in awe or smile in joy. It's a great mixture of all these different emotions and feelings coming together. Um, so th those are different views of, what, of this dramatic moment where Peter or where Thomas is engaging with Jesus and seeing for himself that Jesus is alive. And then Thomas utters the words that are the climax to John's dramatic and important narrative, very crucial words. 
But before we look at that, I want to take a brief diversion. Um, and it's related to a question about the nature of the new creation and Jesus himself. And the question is, if the resurrected Jesus is leading the way into new creation, why is his body not completely restored to his previous condition? Why does the new Adam still have scars from the old creation? And we, don't we read in Revelation 21, which was written by John himself much later um, in his life, Revelation 21 says, He saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So there's a bit of a conundrum, I think, here. But it could be, maybe, let us think about this, that Jesus' scars are an essential part of what happened to him, and they cannot be erased or forgotten, even in eternity. Mark Laberton, uh, president of Fuller Theological Seminary, says, The wounds of Jesus are not the final word, but they are meaningful. And singer-songwriter Michael Card puts it this way, The marks of death that God chose never to erase, the wounds of love's eternal war, when the kingdom comes with its perfected ones, he will be known by the scars. I think there's also another layer to this. Um, of what is true for Jesus and his resurrection life, resurrection life will also be true for us and at the great resurrection for us. Our hurts and our weaknesses are part of our personal history. Some of them might fade from memory or their impact might lessen over the years, but they'll always have some kind of influence on our lives. Our task is not to necessarily to try to forget our trauma, we need to find ways to recontextualize or integrate those into our life going forward. And our scars are not to be downplayed, but they don't need to be necessarily definitive of our life for all time. Um, I want to revisit the world of art again to kind of reinforce this point. There's an art called, um, in, ja in Japanese art, called kintsugi. And there's a video clip here I'd like us to watch that kind of reinforces this this point so let's can we roll the video there um, Kintsugi how about that neat isn't it I think there's some gospel truth there as well well we need to return back to Thomas now um, and the rest of his story in this episode his expression or his exclamation when he says my Lord and my God it's not just some mode of address or even an exclamation of praise. It's really a full-on confession of faith in Jesus as the divine Christ. So now I think we might need to kind of take a, a step back and get a better, bigger picture of Thomas rather than just seeing him as doubting Thomas. There's three other or two other um, mentions of Thomas in the Gospel of John. One is in uh, chapter 11. Jesus was headed to Bethany to uh, visit and eventually raise from the dead his friend Lazarus, who had died unexpectedly. Um, and as he's announcing this plan, Thomas says to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This kind of shows a little bit of surprising initiative on Thomas's part. Usually it's Peter or John or Andrew, one of the other disciples that takes the lead in stuff. But here Thomas speaks up, and he's showing some um, level of courage, I would say. 
He's still a bit gloomy and fatalistic by going, you know, we're going to go with him and die, and really not a whole lot of faith. But it's still, Thomas is taking the initiative and showing some courage. And he probably, maybe of all the disciples, was the one least surprised by Jesus' crucifixion. He anticipated the fact that as Jesus was making his way to Bethany and then Jerusalem, Jesus was headed to his death, and Thomas was willing to go along with him. Another instance where Thomas is mentioned in the Gospel of John is as Jesus' death, time of death draws closer, he tries to prepare his disciples, and he tells them that he is going away. And, quote, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? So Thomas was a little bit slow to grasp what Jesus was trying to tell his disciples and the, the direction that Jesus was going. And then here in John 20, we see that Thomas is unwilling to be taken in or accept at face value fanciful tales. He was very firm in his beliefs and his loyalties. He was uncompromisingly honest. He was slow to jump to conclusions, uh, but once he was, he was committed all the way. So maybe we shouldn't call him Doubting Thomas. Maybe he's Honest Thomas, or Courageous Thomas, or Faithful Thomas. I don't know, what name would you give Thomas now that you have studied and learned about him a little bit more? It doesn't matter whatever handle we put on him. He shows us that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt can be faith's companion. Doubt can test your faith. It can temper our faith. It can strengthen our faith. So the opposite of faith is not doubt, but actually it's fear, which is where our passage started. Remember, the disciples were locked behind closed doors in fear. John has taken us in this, these few short verses from fear through doubt and into faith. I found a, a short little prayer that kind of summarizes this and uh, prepares us for us. I'd like us to pray this prayer, or I'll read this prayer, and you all can listen to me as well. Um, I ask you to join me in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Resurrected God, though we have hidden ourselves in a locked room and huddled together as ones who build barriers, Send your living word through our locked doors and into our guarded hearts that we might be witnesses of your grace and couriers of your goodness. By the power of your Holy Spirit, grant us the trust to believe the gospel, not because we see it, but because we have been seen by it and through it transformed. Amen.